Welcome one and all to Vision on Sound here on Fab Radio International with me, Martin Holmes. It's Christmas Day here at Vision on Sound HQ and everybody else on my usual guest list has slipped away to spend their day catching up with all their nearest and dearest or hiding under their own particular choice of rock or just generally stuffing their faces, unwrapping their gifts or simply vegging out in front of what is traditionally meant to be one of the best television days of the year and wondering whether that plate of mince pies, bottle of something tasty or bowl of salty snack food is worth stretching out their arm for, especially if it requires them to put down the remote control. So what does that leave for us to do for you here at Vision on Sound? I mean, obviously we can't compete with such delightful distractions, and yet we've still got a show to do, so I thought I might share a little seasonal story with you all and see how that pans out. Think of it perhaps as a little gift from me to you, although if it doesn't quite suit you or you want to return it, unfortunately, I do seem to have lost the receipt, so you are rather stuck with it, I'm afraid, at least until the charity shops reopen anyway. It's a familiar tale, of course, because they always are, really, and there might be one or two moments of schmaltzy sentimentality along the way, because the day itself always seems to demand this, and some of the names, events, faces and dates have been changed to protect the innocent, and to keep our legal team from having to answer any calls upon this most festive of days. Christmas spirit or not, Bob's holiday overtime rates are appalling. Anyway, in the best traditions of the forgotten gospel according to Max Bygraves, I wanted to tell you a story of that time when one particular Kris Kringle, whose name has been changed to protect the innocent, was busily ringing his handbell and wishing the world the very best of seasonal cheer outside the very swish and very swanky Royal Savaloy Hotel in the very heart of Manchesterford. Because, like I told you, we're changing all of the names to protect the innocent. Upon one wet and soggy Christmas Eve, not so very long ago, in a story I'm going to call A Festive Fade-Out. The TV was dead to begin with. This doesn't need to be particularly understood for the rest of this story to unfold, but it does perhaps at least supply some small explanation as to why what was about to occur did occur upon that damp Christmas Eve. On the wet pavement outside the Royal Savaloy Hotel, a merry figure stood, his arms swinging jovially in some vain attempt to keep both warm and merry as the last of the festive holiday shoppers sped along the glistening pavements, hunched up against the cold and wind, and paying little attention to this red-clad Chris Kringle, because those names remain changed to protect the innocent, who was still standing there long after it seemed strictly necessary, ringing his handbell and wishing them all the very best of days. Most of them were more concerned about keeping their shopping dry and whether the last buses from the city were still waiting for them at the depot and if their families had already cracked open the special festive food and drink supplies without waiting for them to come home than to pay much heed to yet another of the trappings of commercialism that they had already spent far too much time worshipping at the temple of. But still Chris rang that bell and wished them all his jovial greetings anyway to every single one despite being mostly ignored by so many of them. 
His ears were glowing bright red from the cold, and if he was being honest, starting to hurt a bit from listening to the incessant bell ringing. So Chris pulled his merry faux fur-trimmed hat down further over his head to cover his ears, and began to idly speculate, as he already had several times that day, quite how much longer it might be until the last of the revellers finally vanished from the sodden streets, and he might, at last, get to take his not inconsiderable weight off his feet. He so looked forward to being able to remove the pair of black shiny boots that were, he had to admit, and despite his outwardly merry countenance, starting to pinch more than a little bit, and maybe settling down to a little bit of Christmas cheer himself. And so it was that Chris, somewhat lost in warm thoughts of home, completely failed to hear the cry of look out that one of the more alert shoppers shouted as a warning just a moment before the plummeting television set smashed into the ground mere inches from where Chris was standing. and exploded heavily into a pile of useless glass, metal and plastic beside him. He supposed that if he could have leapt out of his skin, as some people claim they can, he would have done so right there and then, but he found, to no real astonishment, that he could not. It might have been the shock, he presumed later, that instead found him focusing upon the fact that he was very grateful that it had been a flat-screen model that had fallen, and not one of those bulky, and very much more prone to the strict laws of gravity, 1970s jobs. Those ones with the huge vacuum tubes, which would probably have imploded massively upon impact and showered him with far more broken glass than this lightweight modern version had. That's progress for you, he muttered to himself, and idly wondered if the flat rectangular shape had slowed down the fall of this TV set at all, as it had a more lift-inducing, wing-like aerodynamic shape, and he started to mentally calculate whether it might have been less or more advantageous for him if it had been an even bigger screen under such circumstances. He decided that this was not the case, as the mere inches it had missed him by would have been utterly swallowed by that expanded screen size, and so it would surely have hit him if it had been any larger. Which is finally when the realisation of what a lucky escape he'd had, unlike this unexpected flying object, finally struck him, and the shock caused him to heavily sit down very suddenly. As Chris tried to calm himself down, he merely briefly and graciously acknowledged the concerned remarks of the small and suddenly far less distracted gathering that quickly formed around him, telling him all about what could have happened, but which thankfully had not. Despite trying to wave them away as if nothing had happened, and telling them not to be concerned, he found that his own eyes were being drawn in the same direction as many of their gazes, up the side of the hotel building, in the direction of a particular balcony several floors up, to where raised voices could still be heard. Chris had seen enough episodes of CSI crime scene investigation over the years to know that both he and the crowd still surrounding him were all still standing in a vulnerable spot if a plummeting body should happen to follow this television set down to earth, as seemed highly probable if he knew his teletropes. So he shakily did his best to get back on his feet and gently persuaded them all to move towards the shelter of the concrete awning that kept the hairstyles and designer clothing of those who considered themselves to be the great and the good dry as they entered the building from their various taxis, town cars and limousines. The moment, as they will, passed. Reassured that Chris was probably all right enough to be moved on from dealing with and that whatever drama they had just witnessed was probably over, the small crowd drifted back to thoughts of their own various Christmases. After a short while, Chris found that all of those people had drifted away into mere memory, as emphatically as their thoughts had, although he might have been pleased to know that several of those minds were full of exciting new thoughts about the tale they might have to tell their friends and families of the terrible thing that they very nearly saw happen. And on Christmas Eve as well! Alone again, Chris idly inspected the fallen remains of the TV and wondered what scavengers might yet come to claim them, but so far nobody had. 
Maybe the driving rain had made the hotel doorkeepers choose to ignore this cluttering inconvenience, or maybe they had been distracted by another limousine arriving, but certainly nobody from inside the building had shown any interest in the fallen remains of one of their TV sets, or even that it had fallen at all, or the fact that his bell had stopped ringing. Perhaps it was such an everyday occurrence that nobody cared anymore. Ironically, the current occupant of room 101, which was situated not so very far along from this spot, and also slightly above it, happened to be a woman of great self-importance, with a very judgmental temperament, who coincidentally was named Agatha Bell, although this was not her real name. Because she had no personal desire for any further angels to be getting their wings today, she was very much over the moon about the fact that Chris's handbell had stopped ringing, as it meant that she would not have to make her 15th call of the afternoon to the reception desk in order to complain about both it and the inadequacy of the hotel's triple glazing to block the sound out. Instead, she could get on with enjoying her own little festive treat to herself, and set about pampering herself in preparation for the arrival of young Millicent, not her real name, with whom she'd been having a very discreet affair for the past three months, which was something that would no doubt scandalise the Women's Institute Committee if it, unlike herself, ever came out. Equally, Tom, not his real name, the manager of the Royal Savoy Hotel, was similarly delighted that Agatha Bell had finally stopped calling him, and he could now get on with the far more important business of how he was going to cover up his latest bit of holiday fund embezzlement. Neither of them gave any thought to the dreadful thing that might have happened almost upon the very doorstep of their lives, and instead just selfishly got on with what they were doing, oblivious to the near tragedy that had happened outside. Chris entered the hotel lobby as inconspicuously as he could whilst wearing a Santa suit on Christmas Eve, which meant that nobody paid him the slightest bit of attention. An angry-looking man, all hunched up in a big black overcoat and black drainpipe jeans, and whose head seemed to consist mostly of a ball of grey hair, barged past him on his way towards the front door, which caused Chris to sigh, but he still tried to maintain his Christmas cheer and decided not to bellow furiously at this raging figure as it sped away. He briefly considered releasing the clapper of his handbell and ringing it right there in the middle of the lobby to get some attention, but instead drifted over towards the reception desk, where a young person whose name badge declared them to be called Sue, not their real name, and that they'd be happy to help, proved to be less than pleased to hear about the mess on the pavement outside which might need clearing up, and started making a remarkably terse phone call to housekeeping that suggested that they suspected that Chris was planning to take their name very literally. Knowing that he had already outstayed his welcome in that part of the hotel, Chris thought for a moment and then sauntered towards the lifts as casually as he could manage for a man of his bulk and conspicuous appearance, and hopped into the very first one that made itself available. Any seasonal cheer that might once have existed amongst its occupants swiftly evaporated as they all became aware of his great bulk and shuffled their places in the pack to increase their own personal spaces by whatever minuscule increments they could get. After one of those seemingly endless journeys that were actually only a few moments long, they reached the seventh floor, and Chris could almost feel their moods elevating as the doors opened and he stepped forward as if to leave. He briefly considered making a great show of changing his mind and pretending that he had the wrong floor, but decided that because it was Christmas after all, he wouldn't, and the sense of relief from all those lifted moods contained inside that soaring box almost disembarked with him and followed him into the corridor because earlier on, as he'd been looking at the remains of the TV set, he'd noticed a sticker on the back of it, which had a room number printed on it. This, he presumed, was no doubt because even the great and the good aren't above a bit of petty pilfering if they think that they can get away with it. Probably more than most, he thought to himself, as he cautiously approached the door of number 712. 
Had he known that she even existed, Chris might have been surprised to find himself agreeing with Agatha Bell about the state of the soundproofing of this hotel, because when he put his ear to the door, he could clearly hear the sound of a child sobbing its little heart out somewhere in the room beyond. He paused for a moment and then rapped softly on the door. Are you okay in there? he asked tentatively. After a moment's hesitation and a lot of snuffling, a soft, who, who is it? came in reply. In for a penny, thought Chris, and cleared his throat dramatically before declaiming, Father Christmas! Ho, ho, ho! with as much confidence as he was able to muster. Everything went quiet. He thought about ringing his handbell again, just to fill the silence, but thought better of it. The silence persisted. After a moment, he thought that he could hear the faint sounds of what sounded like a piece of furniture moving, and, realising what was most probably going on, he stood back from the door so that he could be seen in all his damply bedraggled finery through the security peephole. Ho, 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 he ventured again, and as what now sounded like some kind of dining chair was shuffled back to wherever it came from, he decided to ring the handbell anyway. The door opened, just a crack and the fingers of a tiny hand appeared, and, at just about the height of the door handle, he thought that he could make out a mop of tousled hair and the glint of a very wet eye. "'You can't come in,' said a trembling voice. "'My dad says.' "'Is your father there?' replied Chris. "'No, no, he's he's gone out,' the voice replied. "'Is it because he tried to drop a television on my head?' asked Chris, and with a stifled shriek, the door immediately was slammed shut again. Well, that was a great idea. Well done me, thought Chris to himself, and sat carefully down on the floor with his back to the wall opposite the now stubbornly closed door, resigning himself to waiting until the absentee father showed up. It'll probably only be for a minute or two, he thought, and tried to relax. Presumably the fellow had only popped down to reception for a moment, or gone out to grab some food from one of the snack machines, or something like that, and he hadn't left the poor child all alone on Christmas Eve. Time passed. Chris opened his eyes to find the door across the corridor from him was now more than half open, and he thought that he could make out a slight figure wearing blue striped pyjamas silhouetted against the light of the room, hanging onto the door handle as if ready to slam it shut again in an instant. Ah, are you really Father Christmas? came a nervous voice. Do you want to take the chance that I'm not? replied Chris, immediately regretting his own cynicism as he struggled to get into a more comfortable position and tried with some difficulty to stand up. Dozing off while sitting on a hard floor in damp clothes was really not doing him any favours. I, I'm sorry that my dad threw the TV at you. He didn't mean it really. It just stopped working and he, he, he just gets a little angry sometimes. Well, that's hardly, began Chris. I'm Billy, said the child, which was obviously not their real name who then held out their hand, as if offering very politely to shake hands with Chris. Rather taken aback by this, Chris managed to shift into a kneeling position in front of Billy and held out his own hand in response. Pleased to meet you, Billy. I'm Chris. And he beamed what he hoped was a winning smile from the midst of his tattered white beard. Does, does what my dad mean mean that I'm going on the naughty list again this year? Billy asked. Oh, I shouldn't think so, Chris answered, through what he hoped was an appealing smile. He was also trying very hard not to peek beyond the child into the opulent suite beyond. As if noticing this, Billy hesitantly said, I, I can't ask you in. I wouldn't expect you to, Chris replied. After all, I could be anybody. But, Billy added with a smile, I, I could bring you out a chair to sit on. This was an offer that Chris gratefully accepted. And so, after another short round of furniture rearrangement, Chris found himself finally rid of those killer boots and sitting on a very fine dining chair in a corridor opposite room 712 of the Royal Savoy Hotel on Christmas Eve and talking to a child named Billy. 
Billy, meanwhile, was now wearing a very fine dressing gown over those blue striped pyjamas and was also sitting on the chair positioned right by the door of their father's hotel suite. Billy was a very proud kid, and so Chris very quickly was informed that Billy's father was a former rock star who had fallen upon comparatively hard times, not least because his habit of trashing hotel rooms had got him thrown out of several bands over the years. His record royalties meant that he wasn't short of a few bob, which is why he could still afford to stay in places like this. But despite Billy's best efforts, he really hadn't learned to control his anger and frustration. It seemed that Billy's father was so disappointed to be no longer playing at the bigger concert venues, but at least he tended to take his anger management issues out on the household furnishings of the places they stayed in rather than on Billy. But Billy had been left alone on this Christmas Eve because their father was out playing a gig in some pub somewhere in the area and was expected to be returning very late. And you with no telly to watch either, twinkled Chris. Tell you what, I'll tell you some Christmas stories to help pass the time until your dad gets back. How do you feel about that? That sounds okay, replied Billy without very much conviction, but it had at least started to cross Billy's mind that they might not be on the naughty list after all. Now, let's start off with a Christmas past. My past? No, said Chris, thinking fast and trying to come up with anything that he could remember that he might be able to turn into a Christmas story. Telly past. <laughs> Now, Billy, you've got to realise that this was all so long ago that telly didn't really have Christmas specials like we know them today, with crazy mixed-up retellings of stories about abandoned babies or grumpy souls being redeemed by the intervention of spirits and all that sort of stuff. You know those sorts of Christmas episodes? Tori Amos warbles mournfully in the background whilst everyone's dreams come true in unexpected and most unlikely ways. This story is from a time when, if you were lucky, a bit of polystyrene and the odd decorated evergreen in the corner was the only reason you could even tell you were watching a Christmas episode. Now, have you ever heard of a chap called Patrick McGowan? The prisoner paced up and down impatiently outside the village shop, watching as the various numbers queuing up to make their purchases were served by the rotund shopkeeper who today was wearing a sprig of holly on the strap of his striped apron and had tied a piece of silver tinsel around his straw boater hat. At least for once, it was a shopkeeper that the prisoner recognised, as he hadn't been recast since the pilot. The village was a place in which time had little meaning, and yet there did, however, seem to be something in the air. It was as if the entire wretched establishment had instinctively decided that exactly the correct number of days had passed, and it was time for Christmas to simply happen, in whichever form or version of seasonal celebration the various inhabitants and inmates chose to celebrate it. Someone, somewhere, had obviously been counting up those days, as carefully, he imagined, as they counted all of those they called numbers. For the prisoner, with his somewhat pared-down lifestyle and lack of excessive personal contacts, any such holiday time would be simple enough to avoid engaging with, even in the ordinary outside world, of course. But even in the village, this time of the year now seemed to mean endless queues and jolly, seasonally loaded cries of be seeing you, wherever and whenever he chose to venture abroad from his apartment. He'd seen several of the numbers carrying wrapped parcels about the place, many of which resembled umbrellas or hat boxes in shape. And, if he'd ever wondered where the community got all their colourful costumes from, he felt as if he was finally beginning to get at least some of the answers. Not that he wanted to make any of the answers a prison for himself, of course, but it amused him, at least a little, to see all of the activity, and he even barked out a momentary chuckle, before quickly suppressing it in case one of the rovers misinterpreted it as the spark of yet another escape plan. It was frustrating, however, to have to wait and to wonder whether the village shop would be cleaned out of all the village food stocks before it would be bringing down its shutters and closed its doors for a week. 
The prisoner scolded himself at even vaguely joining in with all of the conformity as the village shifted into this seasonal frame of mind, but he did at least understand that he might get a few days' peace if the people running the place were distracted by some sort of holiday season, and if they were understaffed, he wondered, perhaps this might turn out to be the very best time of year to actually escape from the place. An almighty roar erupted from one of the nearby rovers as it shimmied past a lone evergreen standing in one of the narrow streets nearby, as if to remind him that even his thoughts might betray him. And having noticed that the queue for the shop had finally diminished down to just one other customer, he brushed some flecks of polystyrene from his red-trimmed jacket, pushed open the door and finally went inside. Goodwill towards all men, women and everyone else, however, was certainly not on the prisoner's agenda that afternoon. The day had begun, as it often did, with the customary fanfare and subsequent announcements from that bright, sparkling, cheery voice greeting another beautiful day, and he had gone about his morning routine much as he normally would until two things happened. Firstly, he found that his usual jacket had been replaced as he had been asleep by one bearing a red silken trim. Secondly, he noticed that a slim red envelope had been pushed through the gap under the front door of his apartment. Ripping it open, he had almost laughed out loud at the to all at number 6 from everyone at number 14, message written inside the greeting card, reminding him, as it did, of all those nameless neighbours he'd once lived alongside in London, to whom he'd never introduced himself, but who still felt some need to post such messages through every single door on their street. In some ways, he reflected, the village was not dissimilar to the rest of the outside world at all. He considered throwing the card straight into the waste paper basket, and was on the brink of doing so when he paused, thought better of it, and placed it alone upon the otherwise empty mantelpiece. He was just stepping back to admire this huge effort at seasonal decoration when, inevitably, the front door swung open and the latest new number two arrived unannounced and without warning or invitation. He recognised this particular fellow, however, so it was something of an old new number two who invited himself in. A somewhat dishevelled vision of hair, beard and rotund form who greeted him with an artificially jovial smile and congratulated him on joining in and finally getting into the spirit of things with a superior tone that suggested he knew that all of his lies would each go unchallenged. The red and green stripes of his scarf did little to improve his pockmarked appearance, however, and achieved little other than to simply reflect the colours onto his jowls and to give them a peculiarly unhealthy and sinister hue. I've always enjoyed Halloween, remarked the prisoner pithily, which rather quickly reduced the fixed grin to something more bitter lemony, as number two's eyes narrowed and flitted about the room as if hunting for more prey. I'm having a small festive party. It will be very intimate. Only the most important people will be there. Twelve o'clock, the Green Dome. You are, of course, invited, he said, pulling an invitation card from his pocket. Taking the card from number two, the prisoner retorted, I'm afraid I must decline. Number two narrowed his eyes, but before he could say anything, the prisoner continued, You know how it is. So much to do, people to see, places to go, he added pointedly. Number two shuddered slightly at hearing this, and narrowed his eyes again. I'm afraid that I really must insist, number six, he barked, with a hint of malicious malice creeping into the unstated threat. The two men glared at each other for a moment, but it was the shorter figure who blinked first, as the moment seemed to pass. Number two cleared his throat nervously. Oh, you simply must come. After all, it is so much better to be invited than to not be invited, isn't it? Just think of how many people are going to be simply dying to know what's going on and wondering why they didn't get an invitation. No, I simply won't hear of it. You will be there. And with that firmly settled in his mind, number two glanced nervously at the wall as if responding to some unseen observer and then turned towards the door. 
Be seeing you then, then, he cried, with as much heartiness as his cold heart allowed him to manage, and the door opened to allow number two to leave, as if some unseen greater power had finally decided that their conversation was allowed to be over. As it closed behind the departing figure, the prisoner thought that he heard a merry ho-ho-ho drifting through the air. He stared thoughtfully at the door, wondering whether it had as many ears as the rest of the apartment appeared to. With a little encouragement from one of the more determined of the rovers, at twelve o'clock on the dot, the prisoner presented himself at the door of the building underneath the green dome, a little surprised not to see any other guests milling about the courtyard waiting. The door opened... And, as was often the case, the smart figure of the diminutive butler silently greeted him and led him once more into the vast inner chamber. The half-sphere of number two's chair was in the centre of the room as usual, as were the various control boards surrounding it, but what startled the prisoner for a moment was the group of children sitting cross-legged in a circle around the central area. As the double doors had slid open, they had all turned their bright, eager and expectant-looking faces towards him, and each one of them grinned, as if the prisoner was actually their father Christmas coming to town. The prisoner paused and frowned. A previous number two had, of course, once tried to see if he might drop his guard with children, but the prisoner had not considered that any of those children might actually still be in the village. The chair span around and number two, now wearing a disconcertingly red fur-trimmed suit, unfolded his body from it and dispensed himself into the room. He adopted a somewhat forced jovial manner as he made his way through the human obstacle course surrounding him. Here you are at last, my dear fellow, number two cried, whilst offering out a rather damp-looking, outstretched hand that the prisoner chose to ignore. The children are all waiting for you. Waiting for what? barked the prisoner, although he was immediately taken aback, as some of the children appeared to flinch at his brusque manner, before looking back towards number two with faces full of doubt and concern. Waiting for you, my dear fellow, grinned the round figure, his voice dripping with belly-disguised malice and joy at the predicament he had created. Number six is going to tell us all a lovely story, aren't you, number six? And as he said so, the faces of the youngsters all turned back to look at him again. Number two placed an arm round the prisoner's shoulder and lowered his voice conspiratorially. I told you, number six, these are very important people. Now do try to play nicely. Ah, I see, said the prisoner, raising his voice just enough for the children to hear, and he noticed a few of them shifting again as if settling down for story time. His eyes picked out one child who was wearing some blue striped pyjamas, and he asked them their name. No names, bellowed number two, and seeing how the children's faces suddenly fell, he added, in a far more ingratiating tone, No names, we agreed, didn't we, children? We all agreed that our party would be much more fun if we didn't use our names. Despite this strict instruction, however, the prisoner was convinced that the child he had picked out had mouthed the name Billy, and the prisoner thought that perhaps he had found a kindred spirit. But what about their presents? asked the prisoner, his face the very picture of innocence. How will I know who to give each present to if I don't know their names? And as the faces turned to a sea of delight at the prospect of imminent unexpected presence, he held up his hand as if an unpleasant thought had just struck him. Oh, faces fell. Silence fell. I do believe that I've forgotten to bring the presents with me. I'm very sorry, children. I'll just go and get them. And with that, he darted towards the double doors, pausing as they opened, only to glance back at the flushed face of number two as he tried to restore a little bit of calm to the suddenly very excited assembled group. And so the prisoner had found himself in the village store, ordering as much wrapping paper and string as the shopkeeper could provide him with, and, within the space of that short and magically few moments, only really possible via a jump cut in the television script, he returned to the Green Dome, carrying a huge gift-wrapped box, almost as tall as himself, which was crammed full of wrapped parcels, fully intending to hand them out to all of the children at the party, although, as if having a sudden thought, instead he tipped the entire box of packages out in front of them and decided to let them try and sort things out for themselves. 
Inevitably, most of the children just piled in, grabbing whatever they could get their hands on and tearing the wrapping paper off in a frenzy of gleeful excitement before moving on to another when the contents, which were more often than not a can of village food, failed to excite them quite as much as what they'd seen some of the other children had unwrapped. Billy hovered around the edges of the melee, half-heartedly picking at a box that had happened to fall in their direction and tried very hard to catch the prisoner's eye. The prisoner, however, pretended not to notice and moved cautiously and purposefully around the group of children, picking up the scattered, discarded wrappings and deliberately, very noticeably, placed them inside the now-abandoned box he had carried all the parcels in. His eyes briefly locked with Billy's and they exchanged a moment of understanding before the prisoner put his finger to his lips and slipped into the box and covered himself with the torn paper shreds. Ten minutes later, number two and the prisoner a shred of shiny paper in his hair still flapping in the breeze, stood on the suddenly snow-covered lawn watching the service helicopter take off with a whole sack full of gift-wrapped presents dangling from its skyhook. Not one of your better efforts, number six, exclaimed number two derisively. Did you really not think we'd notice? I thought it was worth a shot, the prisoner replied gruffly. Remember, number six, we are always watching you, always. There's no time for seasonal sentimentality here, growled number two triumphantly. Oh no! and yet you send gifts home for the families of your people, replied the prisoner. A necessary token gesture, it helps a little with our morale problems, floundered number two. Problems, noted the prisoner, but number two merely winced and said nothing. The prisoner watched as the helicopter shrank into the distance and allowed the briefest of flickered smiles to cross his face. What? What are you smiling at? Number two asked as the aircraft soared away, eventually becoming little more than a tiny dot and slipping beyond the horizon. Does watching such a thing make you crave your own freedom, number six? Because you won't get it this way, exclaimed number two, with just a hint of triumph. There are all sorts of ways for someone to escape from somewhere like this, you know, the prisoner said. Not all of them geographical. This time of the year is all about giving as well as receiving, he added enigmatically. So happy Christmas, number two, and may the new year bring you everything you deserve. Although I do hope that I'm not here to see it. Number two tried and failed to summon up any suitably sardonic reply. The prisoner turned and looked him straight in the eye. Oh, and by the way, do you know where Billy is? Number two stood there open-mouthed and simply glared at the prisoner furiously as the bars clanged shut. That's a silly story, said Billy, still steadfastly managing not to go to sleep despite all of Chris's best efforts. Oh, why is that? asked Chris, glancing at his watch. It was already one o'clock, and there was still no sign of Billy's father coming back. Well, why would Billy get inside the sack? And how would the prisoner know where to send it? And why would the village people send it out? And anyway, what would they eat on the journey, and how could they go for a pee? Well, nobody ever expected much about the prisoner to make sense, said Chris. He paused for a moment to think. Okay, okay. Seeing as you're such a clever one, I'm obviously going to have to up my game. Let me tell you another story, one which is happening right now. This is the story of the unlikely friendship of Chris and Billy, he started, trying very hard not to notice the exaggerated eye roll that Billy offered up in return. As with everything else on the telly these days, we meet Chris and Billy in the middle of the story because we're supposed to be intrigued enough by their disparate appearances and interested enough in what they look like to invest ourselves in their backstory even though we don't know anything about them yet. But viewers, don't switch over. Please don't switch over. These are exciting characters because we say they are, we promise you, and we're about to show you. Just stick with us and we can promise you that. 
You all know that they're exciting because a high-profile advertising campaign has been telling you so for weeks. Trailers have been edited together to show you just enough of how big the budget is without completely revealing all of the real money shots. And also to show just how terrible the script and direction are, even though you know it'll still win all of the awards at the NTA next year. Chris and Billy exchange some meaningful looks. Whilst you at home or in the pub or on the bus or train, try and work out what sort of programme this is from this random selection of shots designed precisely, so you won't really know what sort of programme this is. Random characters that may or may not turn out to be significant utter the kind of dialogue that nobody in the history of the world ever has ever said to a real person, but it's delivered with enough gravitas that you know that it's really important. There's an explosion, there's a close-up of somebody crying, somebody else turns away and is consoled by somebody else. The pulsing rhythm of a mournful melody is cranked up a notch as captions come flying at us between the frantic cuts. Chris and Billy have been flung together by an extraordinary set of circumstances that we don't yet know about, but we are all wondering about them because they seem to be such a mismatched pair. We realise already that the frantic cuts of the trailer were representative of the stylistic choices that were also made for the television programme. For no reason at all, we see a jackdaw in flight and then a whole clattering of them are frightened from the trees by a gunshot. Billy is exactly the type of extremely youthful and glamorous person that you never actually find in the real world doing a job like this or living in a place like this and Billy has a whole plethora of problems but nobody knows what a plethora is anymore so we need to show just how many problems Billy has. Billy has a complicated home life. Just to show how complicated it is we are shown a montage which tries to explain the backstory without actually revealing anything very much about the backstory. We see fast cuts between faces, lingering looks linger, fists are clamped to mouths in distress, weeping eyes are seen in close-up, silhouetted figures posing against brightly lit streets full of vehicles with flashing lights. Some people stare mournfully out of windows, other people gather to spectate at some family tragedy writ large. Billy is now alone and playing with a broken toy on a terrible carpet. Shadowy figures in dark rooms talk about Billy being a problem, sometimes in close-up, sometimes at a blurred distance, sometimes muffled, sometimes as clear as a bell. More people in other dark rooms are shouting as if to demonstrate some kind of dramatic substitute for showing convincing genuine emotions. Shortcuts, shorthand, a character defined in an instant. We'll force you to feel something, anything, even if it kills us. And we'll tell you just what we think those feelings ought to be. Cut to another close-up of a woman weeping, her lip trembling. And beneath it all, Tori Amos bleats out because this is a Christmassy tragedy that shows little sign of easy heartwarming resolution. One of those problems Billy has is in the form of the crusty and curmudgeonly Chris, who doesn't really want to be there and has already let us know this in the blink and you'll miss it chaos of the first few seconds of the programme. He doesn't like Billy, he doesn't like anybody, but beneath it all he's got a heart of gold. He only needs someone to take the time to try and understand what makes him tick. Oh look, a baby! If you're sitting at home, please try and cry now for pity's sake, or we'll have to pan across the old photos with Tori Amos playing again to manipulate your emotions to what we think they ought to be if you had any kind of soul at all. But before we get to know anything about any of their lives, Billy and Chris suddenly notice that something awful is happening right in front of them, even though whatever the something is, it couldn't possibly have got this close to them without either of them noticing it approaching. Instead, we see Chris and Billy reacting to something right in front of them, possibly three times over, depending on how the various shots get edited together. One of the angles might even be in slow-mo, even though we don't know what it is yet. We cut to a helicopter exploding. We hope it's not the same helicopter as in the previous story I was telling you earlier, otherwise that would be unbearably tragic. Which is good, obviously. Before we have time to think about this, we cut again, this time to some beautiful scenery in an area of the country that you might never have considered beautiful before, or perhaps it's a place that you've never even heard of. A sinister figure looks towards the horizon. A montage tells us that it is Christmas in this idyllic place. Or is it? We leap back to the beginning. Or perhaps it's the end. A car window is smashed. 
The car is a beautiful classic, so incongruous and expensive looking amongst the rough and tumble, ordinary yet strangely photogenic streets of the beautiful place in an area of the country that you might never have considered beautiful before that you've probably never even heard of. Immaculately stainless washed clothing flaps furiously around on a random clothesline in the breeze. It is somebody's idea of what the contents of a typical clothesline might resemble, although we will never see any of the characters wearing these things. A group of wheelie bins are artfully arranged to give an urban feel to the rural idyll. An abandoned bicycle frames another shot. Despite there being nobody around for miles, its wheel is slowly spinning. Hands reach in and grab the present stacked on the back seat of the fancy car. A swing creaks in a grey, empty playground despite there being nobody around for miles. Under a lavishly and perfectly decorated Christmas tree far outside the budget of any character in the show, there's a particular gift wrapped as if by a professional. Who is it from? Who is it for? Two random characters exchange meaningful looks, but it's not for them at all. The gift lands amongst the carefully selected rubbish in an exquisitely photographed household waste bin. It lands gorgeously, unopened, bouncing just enough on the top of the other waste to make it feel significant. A hundred miles away, a figure stands at the top of a cliff staring out at the horizon as the wind blows and a mournful melody drifts on the wind across the bay. A craggy face weeps a single tear in extreme close-up. A decision is made. The figure turns, determined, in a street in that beautiful place situated in that previously unknown area of the country that you might never have considered beautiful before, a wide shot shows children playing, a car being driven far too fast, another hand reaches into that waste bin and retrieves the parcel, a figure dashes out into the night along a stone footpath outside a different house to any we've yet seen for reasons that will be explained later, probably. Hands unwrap the retrieved gift, our heroes sit together, parcels are exchanged, as are meaningful glances, and yet the nature of our central relationship must remain ambiguous and something hilarious and unexpected must now happen to stave off the inevitable from being the inevitable just in case the status quo that makes the program unique becomes unbalanced. And as the non-development revelation hinted at in the trailer fails to satisfyingly be revealed after all, a million viewers turn off in disgust and resolve to never watch this nonsense again, at least until the next time that they actually do. And those who have always loathed this type of show anyway but have tuned in for this Christmas special because it's perhaps sounded more interesting than the run of the mill editions or perhaps because they have guests who insisted upon watching it or maybe although in this day and age it's highly unlikely they couldn't find anything else that they'd rather be watching will all have their prejudices affirmed and switch channels away from this nonsense and find something even less challenging to watch but just as we think the story has reached some kind of resolution we cut to an outdoors view of a happy scene snow is obviously falling in that excessive and not at all troublesome or inconveniencing way that it simply must do for a christmas episode and a lot of it has come down very quickly in a manner that was not evident in the location filming that took place in september that leads directly into this scene clever and meta textual cloud pleasing ideas begin to break through the jigsaw of the story structure as the television starts to eat itself because a group of commissioning editors ask themselves is this really what the ignorant masses want before deciding that they probably best not try to be too clever or metatextual. Instead they bung in another couple of explosions for good measure as a figure steps out of the snow and presses a button on a remote control device and the cottage is hit by the fiery remains of another, or is it the same, helicopter and the picturesque beauty of that geographically unlikely thatched idyll somewhere within easy walking distance of the urban areas of some beautiful scenic spot in an area of the country that you might never have considered beautiful before, one that you've never even heard of, is shattered forever until it reappears perfectly restored in a later episode. As the flames fill the screen, a voice drifts out. Was that breathtakingly exciting and action-packed enough for you, Billy? Billy? Billy! And the screen briefly fades to black. And next time, Caption appears. Maybe you're going to watch the next episode straight away anyway because the whole series has dropped, or maybe you really are prepared to wait a week. Whichever you've chosen, you are about to find out that our heroes are very much alive. Or are they? 
After all, it could be a flashback pretending to be a flash forward. Some images will be edited in completely out of context just to make you think that the story is going in another direction entirely. So we see a hammer held in a hand, dripping a liquid onto where the snow would have been if the next episode had still been considered festive. Then, amongst a whirlwind of fast cutting of various scenes of domestic bliss, a gloved hand smashes a window. Happy faces go about their lives in familiar situations in much the same way that the producers hope that the viewers hope that they might one day be able to if they empathise enough and imagine the story to be really all about them. Unoriginal dialogue pretending to be smart, snappy one-liners gets torn out of context to make it appear edgy. A gloved hand clamps over a mouth. There is a scream, BILLY! Blackout. And as the credits finally roll, we sit down, breathless and exhausted, only to ask ourselves, what the heck was that all about? And wait for the inevitable mockery, if our show is lucky enough and popular enough amongst the target demographics of family whamly viewers, to get chosen to be watched on another television show in which people watch television and make snarky comments about it. So what the heck was that all about, asked Billy. Uh, I'm not sure really, Chris replied, but I watched something very similar a couple of nights ago and the critics and the general public all think that it's the best series ever made, apparently. And what did you think of it? Well, it was all a bit unimaginative and derivative if you ask me, but there wasn't really anything else worth watching. Isn't it a little bit age-inappropriate, asked Billy. Get off, said Chris. We're well past the watershed and anyway... You've seen far worse on EastEnders at 8 o'clock. Mind you, if people are making life choices based on what they've seen in some of the soaps, the world's not going to become a much better place, is it? My dad watches them, said Billy. Of course he does, Chris replied mentally, adding another question to the things that he really wanted to ask Billy's father about. Billy yawned expansively. What time is it? Billy asked. Chris looked at his watch. Two o'clock, he replied. Shouldn't your dad be back by now? I don't know. Sometimes the gigs go on very late and it is Christmas Eve. I suppose so, replied Chris. Christmas Day now, he added thoughtfully, almost to himself. Realising that his cosy room and that cosy glass of Christmas cheer were probably never going to happen this time around, he resigned himself to patiently sitting through another self-inflicted round of voluntary childcare instead. He would definitely have more than a few words to say to Billy's father whenever and if ever he finally showed his face. He stretched and yawned and picked around in his adult mind to see if there was anything else there that he might be able to turn into yet another story with which to entertain this surprisingly nocturnal child. Age inappropriately blowed, he muttered, remembering that one of the festive storytelling traditions that he'd almost forgotten about was the Christmas ghost story, and he thought that he might be able to weave a pretty good one. Chris cleared his throat dramatically. Right, listen up, young Billy, because this is a story of television's future, and it is, my young friend, perhaps the most terrifying of them all. However, before Chris could utter another word, as if in anticipation of the untold terrors to come, the temperature of the corridor suddenly started to get very much colder, as if somebody, somewhere, had left a fire door open, and as if the chill night air of the new day's earliest, darkest hours had forgotten that it was supposed to be giving the world a comforting sense of festive cosiness. It instead probed its frosted fingers into those empty nighttime corridors and poked around, persistently seeking out every opening with a bitter, bone-freezing iciness, which immediately overwhelmed the meagre effects of the hotel's already rather inadequate public area heating system to stop Chris's blood from being chilled. Chris shivered, 
despite the costume he was wearing, and noticed as the bits of coloured paper and tinsel that were attempting to add some cheer to the hotel's bland corporate decor wafted and waved in the slight breeze as if some frightful presence had arrived in the passageway from some considerably darker realm. Then suddenly all the lights went out. The hotel Chris remembered suddenly seemed like it was a very long way away, and yet, ripped from what sounded like an exceedingly far away place, there came the sound of an inhuman, muted thud, followed by the kind of nerve-shredding silence that you could hang a whole prison full of murderous villains from. Then there came another, slightly louder thud, and, after another blood-freezing pause, another, and another, as if a heavily laden figure was very slowly climbing a distant staircase out from the depths of hell and finding it a very hard climb. But Chris could tell from the increasing volume that it was definitely getting closer with every thud he heard. Chris looked round nervously. The only light now available was the blueness of the glow that was still coming through the half-open doorway of Billy's room. To both his left and right, the dark corridor suddenly seemed to extend an infinite distance in both directions, and as far as he could tell, there was an endless series of door frames picked out by a faint blue flickering glow around each of the doors. Pressing himself against the back of his chair, he slid himself onto his feet, turning his head swiftly from left to right again and again, as if trying to work out which direction the now perpetual noise of those terrifying thuds was coming from. He tried to speak, but his mouth was so dry that he could barely form any words. Eventually he managed to urgently whisper in a terrified, cracked voice, Billy, get over here now! And the now terrified child moved across the corridor to his side. The thudding sounded as if it was getting closer and closer and closer, and Chris had to make a decision, and so he took Billy's hand in his, and he began to carefully, cautiously etch sideways along the wall in the direction away from where he remembered that the lift doors had been. There was no sign of the lifts, of course, just this endless corridor of identical-looking doors, but he reasoned, quite reasonably, that the creature, or whatever it was, if it was making its way up from somewhere, then it had to be making its way up from somewhere using the stairs, and the stairs tended to be situated more or less in the same place that the lifts were. Chris and Billy kept moving slowly along, trying not to draw any attention to themselves, and Chris's hand eventually reached the first of the door frames, and he leaned across to see if there was anything waiting there before grasping at the door handle to see if he could open the door. Locked. He turned his head and indicated to Billy that they should continue on towards the next one, when he noticed a movement behind Billy as, about a dozen doorways beyond them, that from inside one of the dark spaces of wall between each one, a sinister shadow seemed to expand outwards and began to take on the physical form of a terrifyingly dark, cloaked figure. Run, Billy, run! cried Chris, and, without daring to look back, started running himself. Along the seemingly endless corridor, they sped in the direction away from the ghostly figure. Chris could hear the reassuring patter of those tiny slippered feet not three paces behind him, which he could still make out between the crashing thuds that seemed to fade slightly as they fled away, only for them to increase in volume whenever Chris began to believe that they might get away. He didn't know quite how long they ran for, but eventually, because Chris genuinely knew that despite his fears, he was incapable of managing one more step, they stopped outside another of those identical doors. Chris's entire and not inconsiderably bulky body was heaving heavily as he gasped for breath, and as he tried desperately to suck some air into his tortured burning lungs, the continuing sound of those slow, ponderous thuds began to penetrate even his thoughts whenever he tried to come up with some kind of plan. The flickering blue light seeping through the cracks around the nearest door seemed to indicate, as it did with all the others, that there was something happening on the other side of each one, and Chris, gasping as he was for breath, decided that he'd had enough of the secrets they were keeping, and started banging on this door with as much fury as he could dredge up, only for it to simply swing open, 
and for the sudden burst of blue light to momentarily blind him. Quickly, he ushered Billy through the door and followed him in, slamming the door shut behind them both and dulling those repeated thuds just enough to allow him a moment to think, but not enough to persuade him that the soundproofing in this place had improved very much. The room was bathed in a blue glow that was coming from a bulky headset that encased the entire skull of a lone figure who appeared to be wearing a set of blue striped pyjamas, not unlike Billy's, and was sitting in a black armchair in the centre of the room. Three other seats with similar headsets attached to them were also set up in the room, although they did look as if they'd never actually been used since the day they'd been pulled from their packaging. It was almost as if there was once some forlorn expectation that the figure might one day have some company, but the room otherwise gave no actual expectation that any might actually ever come. The figure itself wasn't particularly tall, and seemed at first not to even notice that they were there. Billy and Chris exchanged glances as they leaned in closer to see if the person sitting in the chair was still breathing. As if sensing them for the first time, the head turned suddenly, and they both jumped back in surprise. Ah, you're here at last. The figure croaked in a cracked voice which seemed to have broken from under use. Sit yourselves down. Billy and Chris looked at each other doubtfully. We'll be trapped, whispered Billy. I know, Chris replied through clenched teeth. But nevertheless, after a moment, they both shrugged at each other and slid carefully into two of the available seats. Put on the helmets, then we can talk, said the masked figure. Immediately after they did, their worlds exploded into light and they were bombarded with millions of different image cubes flying around the void they found themselves in, each of them demanding their attention in a screaming cacophony of raging noise that threatened to drown out any kind of thought. They instinctively both ducked as an advertising pop-up for some kind of new improved razor plummeted out of the mass of flying info debris as it locked onto Chris, and a whole host of similarly targeted product cubes seemed to notice this and headed straight for him. Meanwhile, Billy was being chased by a cube of what looked like some kind of game involving cheeseburgers and milkshakes, and which offered sweet rewards for small achievements, and a whirlwind of faded festive advertising that had seemed paler just moments earlier seemed to find a whole new lease of life, as if it realised it had one last chance to find a new target and started swarming around the child. Billy tried to bat them away like they were wasps at a picnic, but there seemed to be far too many of them, and they hovered expectantly in the air around Billy, constantly barging and nudging into each other to get a more advantageous position, as if they were all waiting for a tasty lunch to feast upon. A loud, confident voice boomed out above the melee. You have to switch down the volume controls. The factory settings are ridiculous. As Billy and Chris looked back at each other blankly, the voice added, use your hands like this. As a huge control panel popped into being in front of each of them and a massive ginger paw swiftly swept across their vision and made a few deft adjustments. They can always, it finally managed to find a button marked mute. Ah, that's better. They can always pick out someone new and unfiltered. Mind you, the unfiltered are so rare these days, and new customers are almost unheard of, so I think you may have confused them. As their minds adjusted to the sudden switch to the brightness of that place and sudden disappearance of that once overwhelming noise, Chris and Billy found that they were standing in a white void alongside another figure who appeared to them to be a six foot tall tabby cat, standing upright like a human and wearing a suit of vivid green battle armour and purple spotted clown shoes. It's my avatar, it said. Sorry, but it seemed like a good idea at the time, and you can't imagine how difficult it is to change it once you've chosen it. Billy and Chris looked at each other. They'd both been reduced to the vague, grey, featureless outlines of something resembling the human form, and each of their faces had been replaced by a flashing question mark. And you are? asked Chris, noticing that despite the mute button, the sound of a dull, repetitive thudding was starting to creep back into the background again. Oh, just another viewer, the figure sighed. I fell for the hype, but then I suppose we all did, really. First we wanted more choice, 
so they said that they would give us more choice only often it was really more options to sell as exciting new products really but dressed up as new programming then the choice became about whether to enjoy new programs or have another chance to see programs that we'd already missed and then the next choice became about which service we might use to see the exciting new things that everyone else was talking about and to simply remain part of the conversation we all signed up for so many services that the only way to keep up with all of them was to plug the system directly into our minds the next thing we knew everyone was just sitting in their own little podule or home if you still want to call it that nobody was ever going anywhere or seeing anyone as we frittered our lives away watching screens whilst being bombarded with commercials to buy all of those things that none of us ever needed anymore and having it all delivered almost instantaneously straight to our mental interface the fear of missing out is a terrifying force to take advantage of beware the toxic kangaroo billy shook chris by the arm what what chris have you noticed how much darker it's becoming Chris looked around. The flashing, blinking lights of all those tiny icons were still swirling around in an endless stream, and thankfully they were flowing some distance away, it seemed. But Billy was right. The pristine, glowing white void that they had originally found themselves in was now so very much darker than it had been. It was as if night had fallen, and that slow, steady, ominous beating rhythm had increased in volume too. Chris tore off the helmet he'd been wearing, and Billy's too, and they found themselves back in that dark room inhabited by the cat avatar person that they both started to fear might be somebody far too well known to at least one of them. They leapt up from the chairs, and between the crashing thuds that were now threatening to drown out every other sound, they thought that they heard a feeble cry of, Don't go! as they turned around to face the huge, sinister, silent, hooded figure that seemed to be growing larger and larger, as it filled the space between them and the door, absorbing the chairs, the struggling cat avatar person, and everything else in sight before sucking such light as there once was from the room and threatening to overwhelm them in a writhing, expanding dark mass of emptiness. Chris was certain that he didn't imagine some kind of hideously lined face appear as the now huge figure threw back its head and the thudding transformed into a kind of mocking laughter as both he and Billy were swallowed by the darkness and spun around and around into the black, inky void. <laughs> Billy woke suddenly and immediately fell off the chair. Across the corridor, Chris had somehow managed to doze off, but the thud of Billy hitting the floor caused him to stir, and he woke up all of a sudden. What? What? Who? He spluttered, and then he remembered, and looked around in terror. With a growing sense of relief, he realised that they were back as they had been. Well, more or less. Billy was picking himself up from the floor where he'd fallen, right next to the chair he'd been sitting on in his own doorway, and Chris was still sitting on that chair that Billy had lent him all those hours ago. He looked at his watch. Three o'clock. What day is this? He murmured. It's Christmas Day, Billy replied, surprisingly cheerily given the hour. Rather irritatingly, the child was still as bright as a button. <sighs> so we haven't missed it then, Chris muttered to himself, as he desperately tried to get some feeling back into his legs and found that his spine wasn't likely to be forgiving him any time soon. Rather alarmingly, he realised that from the entry to the stairwell next to the lifts, oh glory be, the lifts were back, a series of dull, repetitive thuds could still be heard. They might not be quite as ominous as the ones in his dream, but they were still rather disturbing nonetheless. A hissing sound came from along the corridor. Psst! Hey! Hey, you! Chris looked around as if he expected to see a spectral cowled figure carrying a scythe. Me? he asked worryingly. Aye, you there, in the corridor. Who else would I be asking? What you want? whispered Chris, with as little confidence as he felt that he could muster. I could do with a hand with this, came in the reply. I've already lugged it up fourteen flights because the lift stopped working. 
Chris forced himself to his feet and started towards the voice, which seemed to be coming from the door at the top of the stairwell. Hi, Dad, said Billy brightly. Hi, Billy. What are you still doing up? growled the older man, shifting himself around in a vague effort to hide what he'd been carrying. Chris has been keeping me company with some of his stories, replied Billy. Oh, aye, and who might Chris be? he asked. He's the man you threw the television at, said Billy. Ah, well, you see... The man spoke as if he was suddenly feeling slightly more wary. Yes, said Chris awkwardly, and then added a bolder, Yes, before thinking about continuing, but the words wouldn't come and he found himself erupting a slightly pathetic, um, instead. He'd planned to make some kind of a fronted speech about his outrageous behaviour when he actually got to see this fellow, of course, but his mind had rather latched on to making some feeble pun about there not being much of the groove or the groovy about his actions, and somehow he never quite finished collecting his thoughts. Standing there exhausted at the top of the stairs whilst wearing his black drainpipe jeans and three-quarter length coat, Chris did think he had more of the raven than the raver about him, but he didn't think of that until much later on when he was already halfway home. Give us a hand with this, will you? Look, Billy. I only went and picked up third prize in the raffle, and he slid the huge cardboard box through the doorway. Because the universe is a cold, uncaring, and often heartless brute, sometimes it rewards the unworthy even when they least deserve it, and so, by some quirk of literary providence, after leaving his child alone all evening and allowing them to fall under the dubious care of a luckily fairly benevolent stranger, this careless, thoughtless flinger of television sets had been rewarded by being given free of charge, gratis and without any consequence, a brand new flat screen television set that almost certainly hadn't fallen off the back of a lorry and found its way into a pub's Christmas raffle at all. This was the very same television set that Billy and Chris helped him manoeuvre through the door of their hotel suite in the early hours of a Christmas morning. And after doing this, Chris and Billy looked at each other and, as if they'd somehow instinctively reached some form of unsaid agreement, they both took a hold of the box, contents and all, and once Chris had taken a quick look and given the all clear, threw it over the edge of the hotel balcony. Happy Christmas. Many thanks to all of you out there for listening to all of our efforts this year and thanks also to all of those people who helped make Vision on Sound possible, including all of the regular co-presenters, our various guests and those very fine people at Fab Radio International who've somehow managed to make it possible to keep on bringing you these shows each week. So I've just got time to wish you all a happy Christmas and all the very best for whatever the new year may bring and say, as ever, I have been Martin and this has been an unusual but hopefully enjoyable Vision on Sound. Goodbye for now and take care. Yeah.